We are going to continue uh, part three of our series called Just This Once. Inside of your program is the note sheet to be able to follow along, write some things down. It's been a series on miracles. And uh, let me start by saying this previously on uh, Just This Once, which is like a Netflix classic uh, line there. Uh, But previously on this, we said that uh, this has been a series talking about miracles that show up, not just in general in the Gospels, but specifically in the book of John. Uh, One of the Gospel writers, his name was John, who wrote the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but wrote it in such a different way. It really stands out differently than the first three. And in it, he gives us a little clue as to why he wrote it. He includes them like little signposts, little cues. He calls them signs, miracles, but miracles with a point. Miracles that like for him begin to help make sense and point towards something significant. They all have a trajectory towards the grand miracle of all, which is Jesus rising from the dead, which is an unbelievable thing in and of itself. And it would, it would be un- unbelievable had it stood alone. And for John, he goes, listen, I believe that that happened, but it's not like my faith is all that impressive for believing that. And I didn't get there just out of the blue. There were signposts along the way that got me to think, what could he do next? What could he do next? What could he do next? There it is. He rose from the dead. Like, and that became the central crux of Christianity moving forward. But he, his big statement, and I think the reason he wrote John is because I believe that that actually took place place, but it's not like this, I willed to believe it, or I tried really hard, or I closed my eyes, or had really big faith. There were signposts along the way that got me prepared and got me there, and I want to copy some of those down for you so that you too can believe. In fact, he writes it like this, John chapter 20, uh, verse 21, or 31, excuse me, or 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written. I wrote these. He did so many things. Some of them are included, some of them are not. But these ones specifically, these seven, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that God made him human, came in, uh, in, in body and in form, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Not only that you assent to this like belief that he was the Son of God, but that it actually begins to change your life in some sort of a practical means. I wrote these things that you may also believe. So when we read through the book of John, it would be, uh, it would be part of the, the process for us to follow along in these signs to kind of develop the case that he's making for Jesus in this way. Now, there are little things in between each of these signs, little narratives, little stories about Jesus going here, doing this, teaching this, whatever. Those you can follow along your own. This is not supposed to be an exegetical, which is basically verse by verse look at the book of John. It is a sign by sign look at this thing through that perspective. And so in week one, we looked at the first sign or the first miracle which was the turning of the water into wine at Cana. And for John, the reason this is significant is not because Jesus is this miracle guy who can you know, change water into wine. For him, he, he said, the, the way that we saw it and the way that it transpired and the way that it played out in the course of this wedding, that the headmaster of the wedding tasted the new wine and said, this is even better than the first. And we realized that this is not just, it has, it's more than just wine now. He was making a statement about himself about the idea of a nation chosen by God to be Israel, to be you know, kind of uniquely favored in that way. And he's like, that was great, but like, there's something coming that's better. The original wine at the wedding that was served was great, but this new wine is better. Something is coming and that something is better. And John's like, that was the first time that we begin to register like, okay, something's taking place here that's a little bit differently. And the second sign last week, we looked at the royal official who had a son who was sick and desperate times call for desperate measures. And if your son was ever sick, you would go to the ends of the earth 
to do anything. And so he had heard about this person named Jesus. He walked from Cana, which is about an eight-hour walk to Galilee, to be able to approach Jesus and say, I've heard through the grapevine that you're like this healer thing. My son is laying sick and dying. There's really no hope for him. He might even be dead now. I don't even know. But if you would come, if you would come to my house and lay your hands or do your little abracadabra something and heal my son. And Jesus looked at him and he gave him this, asked him this question or gave him this challenge, the same challenge that he issues to every one of us. Are you gonna trust me based on the testimony of other people? Are you gonna trust me? Listen, I'm not gonna go to your house, but your son is gonna do fine. Now, are you gonna leave without me? Are you gonna trust that what I have to say is true and you have no experience with me? You've never seen anything. I've never done anything for you previously, but are you gonna trust the testimony of what other people have said about me? and walk away with faith. And he walked home by faith, which is the exact same thing we have. Listen, every single week we come together, we look at the testimony of what other people had to say about Jesus, and we have to decide what are we gonna do with this? Are we gonna trust in Jesus based on the testimony of other people? That's exactly what the New Testament is for us. So we find ourselves in this, and John knew it too, so he captured that and, and collected that and said, this is another sign that we believe that Jesus is different. So today, part three, uh, sign three. This is, if you have a Bible at home, Sometimes they have little subheaders above a little paragraph. The, the subheading above this one would be the healing on the Sabbath or the paralyzed man uh, who gets healed on the Sabbath. Um, and here's, let me preface before we jump into the text. Um, if you have ever been bothered by the fact that there exist oftentimes in life policies that come at the expense of people, that people suffer because policies are in place. The policies are there for good reasons. They're there because abuse exists in the system. So as a business, as an organization, as a something, you have to establish some policies. And every once in a while, there should be some exceptions to the rule, but every once in a while, people suffer because of policies that are in place that were probably put there correctly, but people suffer as a result of it. Then I think you're gonna like today. Now, what's worse than policies over people? People who love and delight in policies over people. There, you've seen this. People who love the fact that they get to say no because the policy is in place. They get like a secret sick joy out of it. I'm so sorry. You're in, the insurance is not gonna be able to cover this. You didn't fill out the paperwork. This wasn't an at-job kind of type of injury. This wasn't, I'm so sorry. And you can tell in their voice that they kind of delight in that, Right? Or there are people who uh, come up with very creative means to interpret policies a certain way. What's, what's worse than people delighting in policies over people? People who come up with creative ways of interpreting policies to be able to leverage policies over people that had nothing to do with the policies in the, in policies in the first place, but because they're in authority, because they're the ones setting the rules, because they're the ones with the microphone, or they're the ones with all the, you know, the letters after their name or the, the political position or whatever. They're the ones that get to determine the rules. That's what's potentially worse. If you've ever witnessed commandments taking priority over compassion, or if you've ever gotten so caught up in what the text said that you forgot about who the text was for, then I think you're really gonna enjoy today. John chapter five, John records for us kind of the next thing as he leads up to the third sign. Sometime later, uh, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, Jewish 
uh, festivals would take place in Jerusalem about five times a year. There would be something worth traveling home for. Um, and they, he, up to Jerusalem, even though it was south because Jerusalem sat on a hill, so you would go up to Jerusalem. It was always going up to Jerusalem. And here's what you need to know about John's thing too. I mentioned uh, briefly that his gospel sits along differently than the other three. The other three kind of follow a very similar timeline. Jesus would go here, then he would do this, then this would happen, then this would happen. John's kind of all over the place in terms of timeline. And I don't think it's because he's an old man who just has like dyslexia or dementia or whatever and can't remember exactly. I think he's strategically trying to tell a story that is gonna help illustrate his point. I think he has an agenda. He's trying to get you to believe the same thing he believes about Jesus. So when he's doing this, whenever he changes something, there's a backstory with it. He's doing it on purpose. Whenever John sends Jesus to Jerusalem in his story, he is confronting a religious person or the religious institutionalized system of the day. There's, an, there's always, he's gonna go into the temple, he's gonna cleanse the temple, he's gonna say, you've turned my house into a den of thieves or my father's house into a den of thieves. There's always some sort of conflict that's about to take place. So he sends him there whenever he's trying to make a point about institutionalized religion. That's what we're gonna get. So whenever you would read that in the book of John, you go, something's coming, something's, there's gonna be some conflict here and it's probably gonna involve the established religious system versus Jesus' new sort of thing. Verse two, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. He's going into extreme detail. He's talking about different gates. The city of Jerusalem would have different gates in different areas. This would be the way that you would enter into the city. Now there's a good chance that this gate did not exist any longer because he's writing this probably well into his old age. And at, in AD 70, there's a siege laid on from Rome comes in and destroys everything, burns everything down, tears down the wall, does all kinds of stuff. There's a chance that he's trying to say this story in a way that kind of uh, shows that he has authority on the matter in the same way that you would be impressed if I said, you know, back, you know, if you've been around Tri-Cities forever, you know the old butcheries on Court Street that became a food pavilion, but then it sat empty forever and now a church is there. You'd be like, oh, he's been around here for a while. Like he knows the old butcheries, Right. In that same way, I think John is trying to describe in detail, uh, this is an actual place, trust me on this, I know what I'm talking about. Verse three, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. This would be a hub for them. If you were sick in these days, there was not a lot of options for you. There were not a lot of doctors you would have to have lots of money or lots of influence to have the type of care that you would need. Oftentimes, if you got sick, you were just kind of left out of the, you know, if you got leprosy, you were, you were uh, dismissed or exiled to a, a leper colony. If we don't know what to do with you, then like you need to huddle together with all the other sick people and you have only two real options. One is temple sacrifice, whatever religion in the ancient world that you believed in, you would make sacrifices to those gods to kind of heal you from whatever you had or some sort of superstition type of thing. This falls into the superstition sort of category. We, we still have superstitions even today if, if, if you get sick. Well, you know, my mom always said, do this and you get better and you're like, that has no medical value whatsoever, but go for it, whatever. If it helps you psychologically, then, then go do that. In this, they would have a pool. And this pool, the legends said that anytime that the water rippled, that was symbolic of an angel's wings fluttering over the water. And therefore, the next person in the pool gets healed. And it was like this big giant race. So there'd be, there'd be a ripple in the pool and everybody sick in the lane would be like, you know, crutching their way over, which is super dangerous, I would think, right? If you can't walk and you're the first one in the pool and you're just like, oh, the ripples, and you just, you know, fall in, like, I guess you better hope you're getting healed or else that's it, right? 
And, and I, would, I would think, and this is just me kind of reading through this, I always thought it would be interesting because if I was in high school and this was the area, like I had high school friends who'd be like, you know, initiation into this group of friends is we're gonna go take these rocks, we're gonna hide around the corner, we're just gonna toss a pebble in once in a while and see all the, all the sick people jump in the water and be like, isn't that funny? And then we leave. See, that's my sick mind at work. So that's terrible, but I'm just telling you as you're reading this, that's, that's the picture of kind of the desperate measures at which these people who are desperate to get healed would go and do. So uh, verse uh, six, when Jesus saw him, and I've skipped a few verses here, but he sees a a man who's been paralyzed for a very long time. Uh, He saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a very long time. He begins to ask him a question, but it's a very odd question. It's an awkward question. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you've read through it before, but but let let me try and illustrate why I think he asked this question. He says, do you want to get well, which is kind of odd. If you were sick for that long, if you had no use of your legs for any amount of time, let alone years upon years upon times, to ask this question feels irresponsible. It feels outlandish. Why would you even ask me, do you want to get well? And I put in parentheses, do you even want to get well? And before we jump past this and be like, this is him going, well, what kind of question is that? It's a legit question. It's a question that I don't know if, like from a physical affliction standpoint, the answer is probably easy, but there are definitely some people who have been going through some things emotionally or whatever, and you ask them, and people who are, have been uh, sick sometimes cling to that injury, becomes a part of their identity. For sure, this guy has been down there. He knows the ropes. He probably has community at this pool. He probably knows this is old Charlie. This is old Dave. We get together every Friday. We watch the ripples and we make fun of who can get in and who can't get in, all that kind of stuff. So this question for him is, do you even want to go? Well, is this something that you genuinely want? Now, think about it from this standpoint. It's a valid question even for us sometimes. Sometimes getting help is too humbling to get well. Sometimes staying sick the same habit, the same addiction is currently easier than getting well. It's a question that I've asked people before on their way to rehab or on their way to something. Do you want this? Or do you want this because your wife or your husband said, you need to do this or else we're done? Or else no more, you know, you're not gonna see the kids or we're gonna have to split time, we're gonna do this. Is your motivation to do damage control on this relationship or do you want this for yourself? Do you want to get well? Have you thought about that? I know you know I should go do this, but do you want to get well? A legit question. In this instance, the paralyzed man looks at Jesus and says this, while I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He's claiming to make a statement here, but he's also like passively offering Jesus an opportunity to do something about this, right? This is his way of saying, I'd love to, but like nobody, I've got no family or friends here that are willing to lift me in and I can't use my legs to do this. Somebody else always goes down ahead of me. If only I had somebody help me, right? This is his passive way. Yesterday, I took a my kids and uh, our little nephew to the mall to go check out the new Dick's Sporting Goods thing. And as we were walking through, London had a gift card to Build-A-Bear. She wanted to go see what she could get with $10 of Build-A-Bear. Turns out nothing. Um, <laughs> side note. And uh, so we were there, and my little nephew, his name is Zade, 
he's, he's got this bear in his hands and he's, and he's looking at it and, and he's kind of talking to the kids, but also talking to me. And, and he says this, like, he does this little passive, like, I've never had a Build-A-Bear before. I've never gotten to do this before, kind of looking at me. Gosh, if I could only have one more stuffed animal in my life, this would be the one that I would want to have. And, uh, and I said, sorry, buddy. I, I guess your parents don't love you enough to send you with money to, no, anyways, I, I didn't get him the Build-A-Bear. I, 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 but that, that, I, it was very clear in that moment what he's asking, right? He's making a statement, but he's also like, offering a chance to jump in and help out and be the cool uncle, and uh, I didn't bite. So verse 8, Jesus hears him, is convinced that he does want to be healed or whatever, moves on and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Now, if it ends there, it's a miracle, it's a sign, it's, it's great, but it's not quite at this point what John had in mind. Like that's not the miracle, that's not the sign for him. The sign is what comes next. This probably happened a dozen times, 50 times, 100 times with Jesus. But then what comes next, that's the twist in the story that really, I think, becomes John's way of saying, this is why I'm convinced Jesus was the son of God and not just some like healer guy, right? The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Think of the ridiculousness of the statement. The city's not that big. Jerusalem, okay, they probably had seen, I mean, if he's been sick for that long, you kind of, listen, I, I know or I've seen enough people, homeless people or whatever, walk around the uptown and I can kind of identify. He's the saxophone player. He's the guy that plays Pokemon Go all the time. He's the, I, I, I've seen them. I kind of know who they are a little bit, right? In this way, there's no way that these religious leaders don't know who this person is. And yet their first comment isn't, wow, look at you with your legs. How did that happen? Their first comment is, you're walking around with your mat on the Sabbath? Like, what's wrong with you? You know the rules. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to have your mat on your shoulder. There's no work to be done on this day. And in, in, in a sense, they're right. I mean, we, we, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that one of the 10 commandments was remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. And God, again, in, in Exodus, is trying to retrain these people coming out of a slavery mindset, um, what it's gonna be like to be a civilized people again. And one of the things he wants to tell them is, listen, for previously, you worked every single day. You, that's what slaves did. You worked every single day. Therefore, your identity gets wrapped up in your work and you may fall into the mode of thinking, I am only what I produce. I am worth what I can produce. And by the way, this is not uncommon for us, for those of us who have gone through stints of time where there's been day after day after day after work after work. And in your mind, you think, if I can work that one shift, your shifts now have become dollar signs instead of time away from family. It's just how much can I make? How much can I make? How much can I make? How much can I make. And that is, uh, is uh, it begins to, to, to push on us this depraved mentality, right? And we, and we don't like what we become, but we like the money and it generates this lifestyle. And so we, he, he knows that this is going to take place. God knows this. So he establishes, he says, listen, you, I'm going to force you to not do any work one day of the week. For them, it was Friday night through the sunset on Saturday. That's the Sabbath day. You don't do any work. And then what happened is the religious leaders got into this, and they developed a system. Well, what, is, what does he mean by work? Well, work could be physical work, but it could also be this. It could be you can 
Is, is walking work? Yeah, at some point it is. Well, what's that point? Well, they came up with rules. You can walk this far, but you can't walk this far. You take one more step, that's work. This is not work, that's work. They had all kinds of different rules. And they said, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Do you really think there was a law in the Old Testament that says, thou shalt not carry your mat should you be healed? That did not exist. I'm just telling you right now. Their, their interpretations, they said, well, the law says this one thing, but then the tradition of the elders or the things that we have learned over the years, the additions that we've made, the additional fences that we've put in place to keep you from breaking this law, say, thou shalt not carry a burden, and Matt feels like a burden, so therefore you're breaking the law, which they're not really breaking the law. And by the way, no sort of Good on you, man. Congratulations for being healed. The first thing we want to point out is the flaw that you now currently find yourself in. But he replied, verse 11, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Why am I walking? Because somebody healed me. And then he said to me this, and I'm, I, go, I go with the guy who healed me. Like whatever he says, I'm in for because I've never had that before. Imagine and by the way, like again, the attitude that these Pharisees and the religious leaders have towards him. Why would I listen to you when he told me to do this, when you all your entire, like my entire life, all you've ever done is walked past me and had pity on me. And for my entire life, your religious system has got me thinking, what did I do to deserve this? Because by the way, that's what they felt like. Any sort of physical illness that comes along is a result of you doing something bad. What did you do? And it goes back as far as Job. Job, why are you suffering through all of this? What have you done? He's like, I did nothing. Well, you did something. Maybe you don't even know what you did. Maybe you did something out of ignorance that really made God angry. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. It would play on. Later on, Jesus would be with his disciples. They would see a blind man and, and the, the disciples would come up to Jesus. It was so ingrained in their thought life. They said, Jesus, so quick clarification, since you, you know, we're trusting you on all of this. Who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Because they believed that if, if your, your parents sinned, that it could be a generational curse. You're cursed, but then also your kids are cursed but it, as a result of it. And sometimes you know, us cursing your kids or God cursing your kids could be worse than him cursing you because you don't want to see your kids suffer. So who sinned, this, this person or his parents? And Jesus goes on and has this response for this. Like, that's a broken system of doing this. But this is the system this man had been living in. Imagine going your whole life with these types of men looking at you and you can see the disdain in their eyes because they think you've done something wrong, whether you fessed up to it or not. And now you want me to listen to you? I'm gonna do whatever the guy asked me to do who healed me, who didn't look at me in the same way that you look at me. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? You say some told, somebody told you to do this? We may have a second Sabbath violator on our hands, everyone. Give us a name. He should not be healing on the Sabbath because healing is also not allowed on the Sabbath because that requires work. No medicine was to be done on the Sabbath unless it was to save a life. That was the one exception that they made. If, you, if the life is gonna be saved, then we could administer medicine. But other than that, I don't think your life was in danger. I think you could have walked on Monday. So why, why, why would he tell you to do this? We, we need a name to be able to make this work. Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. Verse 14, later Jesus saw him and said to him, see, you are well again. Now, he goes in this next phrase, 
And this is an interesting one that has caused a lot of conflict and a lot of, a lot of commentaries are all over the place. Most of them just walk away being like, we're not exactly sure what he means here. But he says this, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So now is he justifying this idea of you sin, that's why you were sick and now I've healed you, so like stop sinning or else it's gonna happen to you again. You're gonna fall into that same trap, or, which is possible, but I just don't think it's right. I think a better way of doing this is Jesus is, has heard about this man. This is, he approaches him again, he finds him by the way, He's heard that he's being persecuted or asked questions or approached by the religious majority or the religious leadership and said, what are you doing? Like you're sinning by carrying this mat. And Jesus knows it's ridiculous. This guy feels like it's ridiculous. Jesus looks at him and says, you're well again. You better stop sinning. I think this is like cynical wink in the eye, wink, wink, nod, nod. We're on the same page, aren't we? You better stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Better not be walking around with that mat no more. You never know what's gonna happen. I think he's really, really saying something to the effect of, isn't it hilarious how obsessed they are with you about this mat thing? And they're blind to the fact that you've been healed. And they're so miffed that I did it on Sabbath. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And he's creating solidarity with this man against the religious system of the day, which leads me to think that when you begin to recognize who Jesus is, you'll lose your fear of religion and religious people. The pattern that we see in scripture is that when you fall more in love with Jesus, when you fall more into what does he have to say about it, our fear of the religious system and ultra uber religious people who leverage policies over people begins to wane. He's inviting him to see the ridiculous side of that and be like, isn't that broken? Haven't you lived your life long enough under what have I done? What have I done to deserve this? What have I done? What if in saying this, I'm inviting you in to be like, that's just, it's just stupid, man. That's just a system that's broken. Can you see that? Verse uh, 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders it was Jesus who'd made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father's always at work to this very day and I too am working. My father doesn't take a break. And he goes, I know the whole creation story as he rests on the seventh day, but listen, you've never shot up a prayer to him and gotten a back, oh, I'm out of office. Please try again on Monday. I'll be back in. I'm on Sabbath right now. He's like, my father's always at work. How can I not be at work? And he begins to do something here. He begins to associate himself with the heavenly father, which even makes them more mad. First of all, he was, they, were, he, they were mad because he was disrespecting the Sabbath work. And then he's like claiming something about Sabbath in relation to himself that they're like, wait a second, hang on just a second. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling even God or God his own father, making himself equal to God. And they found themselves asking the same question they asked when he went through and cleansed the temple out. Who do you think you are? Not what do you think you are doing, but who do you think you are? It's not a matter of what he did, but who he was claiming himself to be that got him riled up because he began to equate himself with the father. In this way, verse 19, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. I'm trying to tell you right here and right now, if you've ever had questions about what the heavenly father is like, watch what I do. I only do what he asked me to do. I don't do the things he asked me not to do. Everything that I do is a reflection of the Father. Paul would later on in the book of Colossians uh, describe Christ as the icon of God. 
The icon, like the icons on your computer, a small glimpse into the larger program of what it is, a small glimpse that creates an identification factor for what lies behind it. If you wanna know what God is like, I'm right here. Watch me. Listen to what I have to say. Follow me. Verse 39, this is fast forwarding a little bit. Jesus says to them, after kind of chastising them for a bit, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You are so focused on the interpretation of the law that you are missing the living demonstration of it. You prefer policies over people. You've allowed that to take place. In fact, you delight in policies over people and you've attached religiousness. What's even worse than policies over people is a a religiously tinged version of it. And you've done this. And the word, the logos has became flesh and he's standing right in front of you and you're missing it. Listen, this is why the gospels are so important. This is the claim of Christianity. The claim of Christianity, first and foremost, is Jesus is who he said he was. What are you, what are you gonna do with him? All of these other supplemental mater- uh, miracles and teachings and everything, those are all secondary. They honestly are to this idea of what are you gonna do with Jesus? How do you wrestle with this idea of who Jesus claimed he was? And what are you gonna do with it? And Jesus presented this right to them, right at the forefront. And he's saying, listen, You've allowed policies to take priority over people. You've delighted in that. In fact, you've created like these loopholes for yourself to be able to like creatively interpret these policies to to serve your agenda that you've had and you've missed it all because of these held beliefs that you've had. And the challenge for us is as we kind of live our lives and and how do we take some of this and interpret this for us? Like, this is great, this is, speaks to who Jesus was, but haven't we at some point held some sort of, especially those of who grew up in church, some sort of a religious belief that caused us to inform us how to treat or mistreat people based on religious beliefs? And have we been victims of leveraging policies over people, mistreating people in the name of religion? And the danger for us is missing the reality that It's interesting that our views often change, even those commonly held religious views. Don't they every once in a while they change? You don't believe the same things in your 30s that you did in your 20s. And you think, well, yeah, but now I'm in my 30s. And all the 40-year-olds are like, well, that's gonna change, right? I mean, it's funny. You have all these core convictions. Well, I just, I believe this. When I read it, this is how I read it, and this is what it does. I get it, but does, does it allow you then permission to mistreat People, because it feels like Jesus had this critique about the religious system and this, and for them, that they were genuinely convinced this is what, we are respecting God's Sabbath day when we do it in this way. This is a good thing. We are, don't, can't we all agree we're supposed to remember the Sabbath and keep the holy, or isn't that, it'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But you've created fences beyond what the law states to make you feel better about yourself and it's causing you to mistreat people in the process. And I just think it's broken. Couple of questions for us, trying to bring this home. How do we live this out practically? What does this story mean for us? Does your version of religion or politics get in the way of loving people that God 
loves. Does your version, Christian or not, whatever, of, of religion or politics get in the way of loving people that God loves? Or another way of putting it, does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people that God loves? And my challenge to you, my challenge to myself as we process this is if your religion ever gives you permission to mistreat a person, my guess is, based on this story and what we know about Jesus and where we, what we know about him claiming to be God and the version of it, you might be on the wrong side of God. If your version of religion or Christianity ever, ever gives you permission to mistreat somebody, man, I would check yourself a little bit because it feels like John would say things like, this God that I knew, this God is a God of love. And when people were mistreated based on these held beliefs that come and kind of go, he challenges that system in such an incredibly huge way. And this is so powerful, guys. We should want this to be true even before we're convinced this is true. So for those of you who are like checking church out and you're like, I'm not even sure if I believe this, you read this and you're like, okay, I, I want that to be true. I haven't seen that played out in like mainstream Christianity, but like if, if that's true about Jesus, tell me more about him. I'm, I, I'm interested in that. That kind of challenges me and excites me in that way. Listen, I think the reason this is so incredible is John, again, he saw Jesus do something. He saw the healing take place, but it wasn't so much the healing that was the sign. The sign for him was the challenge of really challenging the process of policy over people. And he's like, I saw him like in the flesh do this so incredibly well. I was inspired to be like, that's, that's my Messiah. That's, that's a God, that's the God worth following. That's, that's a challenge for me. So he includes this. And why do I believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Why do I believe that he was truly the Messiah, the Son of God, and that life is best done with him? Because I saw him live this out in such a unique and challenging way. In my entire life, John would say, I've been trying to do the exact same thing. And every day I get up and I try. And I'm, I'm religious. I got beliefs. I got categories that I put. This is how I think you should live your life. And this is how I think you should not live your life. And I, I think God, he's working in me to try and live with the compassion so that the commandments never overtake my ability to be compassionate. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is this, that for those of us who have been on sometimes the end of, you know, we grew up in church, we have these commonly held belief things. It's challenging for us sometimes to put categorize people and belief systems and all that kind of stuff. And it affects the way that we've, maybe we've even have a history of mistreating people based on our religious beliefs. We ask for forgiveness for that, or we've been on the receiving end of that. We've, we're the ones kind of on the outside of culture, and this has been an inspiring story for us. This is a picture of Jesus that we want to be true, even if we're not even sure if we believe he is who he says he is. So give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard today and the courage to do something about it in the way that we are trying to pattern our life after your son, Jesus Christ, in your name, amen.